I mean, you're surrounded by utter beauty everywhere. And then I came home and I started telling my wife, look at that tree right there. Look at that tree right there. Isn't it beautiful? Not like Washington trees, but it's the trees we have here. So I'm not going to complain. I'm grateful. I love the ocean. Got to have the ocean, right? Well, tonight is our third session, and um, we're going to be looking at what makes Jesus so unique. Uh, In our previous session, I talked about and argued that worldviews really matter. They inform how we look at ultimate issues. Everyone has a worldview, and yet not all worldviews are created equal. And I pointed out the difference between monotheism and uh, atheism. Also spoke about deferring views of God, which we have, uh, which is a definite sign that all religions can't be teaching the same essential message. Spoke about Christian theism versus monistic Hinduism, uh, if you recall. And lastly, there were three ways that I used for arguing for God's existence by showing how the God of Scripture uniquely accounts for the physical universe's beginning, um, the order, complexity, and design that's evident in the universe, and lastly, for the puzzle that is man. We are definitely interesting creatures. And so, Lord, we do ask tonight for your help once again, because without it, nothing good of eternal value is going to come out of it. So, God, I pray for the Spirit's power to equip tonight. I pray, God, that you give me uh, clarity of mind. Uh, Help me be um, clear when I'm speaking. Um, And, Lord, um, open up our eyes and open up our hearts to the reality that is you. And I ask this in the name of your great Son, our great Shepherd, our Master and King, Jesus. Amen. Can I get a cup of water? I got cotton mouth. Thank you. All right. Um, Before we go into talking about what makes Jesus so unique, um, I need to say a a couple of words, uh, like about a page and a half long. Uh, first of all, a word on faith and reason and a word on the reliability of the New Testament documents. Uh, you know, this class is called Faith Has Its Reasons, which is a great title. And I really should have capitalized at the first session, but I didn't. So you're going to get a little tiny bit here. Um, there are um, In the Christian world, people often have a view of faith, biblical faith, that is not biblical at all. And uh, so I just want to talk about what does biblical faith look like? Uh, First of all, biblical faith is a self-commitment or surrender to confidence in what one knows to be true. Okay? Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. In other words, saving faith always produces actions, works. 
It produces a life of trust in Christ. And uh, this uh, weekend, or this last five days, thank you, brother. I um, I spent some time with family members, and one of my family members who I deeply love um, said this: that God is above logic, and that faith is above reason. So I said, um, would you please explain that to me? Right? You know where I'm going with this, right? Okay, here's where I'm going. Would you please explain that to me? And then he went on and explained it. I'll just make it really short. I kept over and over asking him, so do you see that you're telling me that faith is, is different from reason, that God's quote-unquote law, God is above logic, and yet, you can't even say one sentence that makes any sense without using logic. Could it be that God is not above logic, but could it be that God is the God of truth and part of truth, uh, part of the way things are, part of the order in the universe is that God is the God of truth? And as such, you cannot get away from logic when you're trying to have any kind of meaningful discourse whatsoever. Anyway, as we kept talking, he started seeing, you know, um, the petard he was impaling himself on. But he refused to accept it. He refused to acknowledge it. And, and I let it go. You know, I just wanted to I- interact. But anyway, um, when we're talking about uh, biblical faith, <clears throat> um, there's essentially three components to biblical faith. And they are these. And when I'm talking about biblical faith, I'm talking about true saving faith. I'm not talking about the Christian faith as, as uh, um, this is the faith we hold. I'm talking about the faith that saves. We can have our historic doctrine down cold and go straight to hell. You can know all their quote-unquote is to know. You can be the smartest person in the world. But that does not equal saving faith. First of all, there is what's called notitia. And what that is, it's the data, the evidence, or the knowledge that you have based on evidence. Um, in our case, it's the knowledge of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but as important as it is, it's not saving faith. Uh, secondly, so you got uh, notitia first. Secondly, you have what's called a census. And a census is intellectually acknowledging as true any particular claim, statement, or proposition that, that you, that's put before you. Another way of saying it is a census is the act of the intellect acknowledging the truth of notitia, the data, without appropriating personal trust of this knowledge. In other words, you're not... You're not throwing yourself into it. You'll recognize based on the data, the argumentation. We're doing a lot of argumentation here. Based on that, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, the, the, I am warranted in thinking that that is true. Okay? So what happens here is that's not enough either. That's not going to save you. Um, because the, the faith that saves is, first of all, historical faith. But it's not just a historical faith. It is not just a set of propositions that we hold to be true. 
and thus try to live our lives by. No. What happens in saving faith is that a senses and notitia come together. Okay? But they're not enough. They're necessary. You gotta have them. But they're not enough. Uh, for example, I, I believe it's James says that the demons believe. You know, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe also and they tremble. Well, they're not saved. Right? They're not saved. That is demonic faith. They know, but they're not saved. They assent. They've got the raw data, but they're not saved. The third component of saving faith is what's called fiducia. Okay? Probably have heard this, maybe if you're uh, in, in law or whatnot or doing contracts. And fiducia is the appropriation of what saves a person. In other words, it's appropriating both notitia and the senses. It's putting all your eggs in one basket. That, that's what it is. It's not doing this when you're at the water's edge. It's just diving in, man. It's all or nothing. That's what fiducia is. Okay? So, um, an illustration of fiducia is this. Uh, let's say um, somebody you know uh, has cancer, and I hope that's not your case. Uh, I, I know somebody who's got cancer. I know somebody who just died of cancer. Um, and... Um, And um, let's say you know somebody's got cancer, okay? Uh, if someone knows of medicine that is out in the market to help, that's called notitia. It's, it's the data. You've got the information. And uh, you understand and believe that this medicine can cure and has cured cancer patients before. That's a census, right? Now, you're, now your knowledge is warranted. You have, you have weight to your claim of knowing something. Okay, but still, those two things do not benefit the cancer patient. It is only until the cancer patient both appropriates notitia, a senses, and now fiducia, where they take the medicine and now they can be healed of their malady, of their cancer. And that's, in a similar way, um, what saving faith is. Uh, saving faith is knowing the, the data of Jesus' life and mission. Number one. Number two, it's assenting to its truth claims, but they're not sufficient for salvation. We must appropriate the data and the truth claim for saving faith to be a reality. Um, in other words, you've got to surrender to Christ. And one of the things that's also concerning me in the church, and again this weekend... Uh, professing people professing to be believers, living in outright blatant sin. I mean, just blatant sin. And thinking it's fine. It's not a big deal because they're accepted by God. And, and, you know, my response is, that is not what new life produces. That is not what the miracle of new birth. That's not the fruit of, 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 of God. A casual attitude toward that which displeases God and dishonors Him. Um, so anyway, um, it's, it's something I want you to keep in, in, you know, in, um, in your mind, uh, when you're interacting with people, um, I pray that you're not one of those people that has just a casual attitude toward, it doesn't matter how I live. Um, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And, um, that's it. I said a prayer. I'm good to go. I have my fire insurance. 
You're not going to find you're not going to find that kind of thinking in the New Testament. You're not going to find it in the Gospels, definitely. You know, the epistles are not going to be teaching that. They're just not going to. So I really want to discourage that. Uh, now, a word on the reliability of the New Testament documents. <sighs> See, the way this class has been set up, I only have four weeks with you. I wish I could have had eight, really. Because one of the things that I like to do is do what's called a cumulative case argument for um, for the, 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 the Christian faith. Because there are a lot of different areas in our faith that get attacked. And there are areas in our faith that we have struggles with, that we have doubt, that we struggle with. And one of them is in the reliability of the New Testament documents. One of them is in our Bible. Can I trust this? Is this really from God or is it not? Was it just men that wrote it or not? And so I am aware that I am just assuming, before I get even to the, the, the meat of our talk, I'm assuming the reliability of the documents of the New Testament, that they are uh, our primary source documents. <clears throat> and, but, and just by way of just a little note here, there is no, no uh, holy book that has undergone the scrutiny of the Scriptures like ours. None. 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 And so when you are dealing with people that start questioning your source of authority, um, if you don't know everything, that's okay. You definitely can continue talking and say, well, so what's your source of authority? How do I know that what your, your sources of authority are reliable? Because there is a, a discipline in literature. It's called uh, textual criticism. Um, and uh, it is a highly specialized uh, uh, discipline where uh, scholars look at how, do, how to decipher whether or not a, a, a book of antiquity is authentic or not. And what I put down here is I'm going to be sending you my notes on that. I've taught it before, but I just can't do this right now or else, you know, you guys are going to shoot me. Um, it's just too long. It's a whole other class. But now I want to get to the Jesus question. Because that's what we want to deal with tonight. What makes Jesus so unique? It's been over 30 years since I've been a Christian. And as I was sitting back there and singing the songs, um, the preciousness of Christ never gets old to me. In fact, the older I'm getting and the more people are dying the more in touch with how precious Jesus is, is real to me. Because I know that one day, unless He comes in my lifetime, I'm going to Him. And so are you. And so, remember when I talked about, we're dealing with ultimate issues here. Now, what makes Jesus so unique? Why bank on Jesus and nobody else? Why bank on what Jesus said as opposed to Muhammad or Confucius or um, uh, the Buddha? Or the many, many different uh, gurus. What's so, what's so different about Jesus? Okay. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was having this conversation with his disciples. And um, he asked them this question in Matthew 16. He says, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? Simon replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's a couple things I want to say here. Nobody has a better person's eye view than those who are eyewitnesses, than those who actually live with a person. And that was the case with the apostles. You really want to know what I'm like? Ask my wife. She'll tell you. She knows me. She's lived with me. She's seen me in my highs and my lows. You want to know what I'm like? Ask my children. They've seen my highs and lows too. They know me way better than some person 100 100 years from now can ever know me. Why? They are eyewitnesses. I want to keep saying that because um, there are a lot of uh, voices that are saying Jesus was this, Jesus was that, the apostles were this, the apostles were that, and they are not eyewitnesses. They did not live, talk, breathe, live with him. Eat with Jesus. They did not. So keep that in mind so you don't so easily get derailed when somebody comes and asserts, well, we all know, you know, that the Bible teaches astrology. I mean, that's what it's all about. Or any other lame brain thing you might hear. Okay? I'm not saying that the person that's holding that view is stupid. They could be way smarter than you. What I'm saying is that claim does not do justice to giving charity to a document of antiquity. And one of the ways we give charity to a document of antiquity is we want to hear what those who were closest to the events and those who knew the people best had to say. Now, uh, one of my professors that I had who wrote this book, by the way, And I really want to encourage you to get this book. It's called, Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions by Kenneth Samples. This is an incredible book, concise, to the point, and very, very well um, articulated. But in his book, he says this, Historic Christianity is all about Jesus, his identity, message, and mission. For two millennia, the Christian church has viewed Jesus as the divine Messiah, whose life, death, and resurrection are God's means for forgiving repentant sinners. At the heart of the Christian faith is the assertion that Jesus, precisely because he is God incarnate, can indeed provide redemption on the cross for human beings. If Christianity's central truth claim that Jesus is God stands the test of reason in history, then faith is powerfully warranted. And so what was Jesus' view of himself? We want to look at what was his self-understanding. Did he view himself merely as a prophet or did he claim to be God? Uh, We we, we want to ask this because in order to apprehend an objective, biblical Christology, I'm going to explain that, as opposed to a subjective distortion of his identity, We've got to be able to ask ourselves a question and answer, what was his self-understanding? Now, when we're talking about a Christological statement, you hear Christ, logical. 
We're simply saying what um, the scriptures reveal about who Christ is and how we gather um, our uh, position, how we come to that position. Um, Philosopher um, William Lane Craig says this about Christianity. The Christian religion stands or falls with the person of Jesus Christ. Judaism could survive without Moses. Buddhism without Buddha. Islam without Muhammad. But Christianity could not survive without Jesus. This is because, unlike most other religions, Christianity is belief in a person, a genuine historical individual, but at the same time a special individual whom the church regards not only as human, but divine. So, in other words, unlike other religions that have systems of thinking, uh, philosophies, a message consisting of codes where you are and I am to live my life, the thing that changes Christianity from everything else is Jesus. Because Jesus brought himself as the core of the message. He didn't just bring a message. He was the message. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. Jesus not only brought a message, he embodied it. So, what I want to do tonight is this. I want to answer the question, who is he and why does it matter? Okay. And first of all, we want to look at, we want to accomplish this by looking at uh, Jesus' identity, uh, examining the modern smorgasbord of modern scholarship, number one. Number two, by examining the self-understanding of Jesus through, uh, through some self-attributed titles. And lastly, by answering why the issue matters. Okay. First of all, Jesus' identity. Examining a modern smorgasbord from modern scholarship, or in other words, what others are saying of him. And among these views that people hold outside of the pale of historic Christianity, which is Catholicism, which is, or which is Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, um, these, this modern scholarship is, um, wants to, um, rescue us from uh, deceptions that have been uh, added to the historical record, which is the New Testament specifically, and that by the early church. And uh, what I want to point out is that there's a, they're coming from a view that is a presupposed anti-supernatural worldview. An anti-supernatural worldview that's presupposed means that when they come to the Bible... Instead of letting the Bible speak for itself, what they are doing is they are um, reading into it. And if there's anything in there that seems to be supernatural, that cannot be explained by quote-unquote natural law and, and, and science, then it's de facto no good. It was not put, it's, it's not true. Okay? Now, uh, when we were talking about how to know truth and how we get at truth. You guys look over your notes. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to go over that. But th- this is part of what, what uh, arguing for God's existence is about. Dealing with philosophical arguments. And these are philosophical arguments. And these are worldviews that these people presuppose. Okay? 
instead of arguing for it. But first of all, um, they want to uh, help us see the authentic as opposed to the inauthentic. Uh, and the way they do that is this. If a saying of Jesus in the Gospels displays any hints of divinity, it is probably a later edition of the early church and therefore viewed as inauthentic. Okay? They are doing exegesis or really eisegesis, which is, you know, throwing stuff in the text based on their worldview, not based on the text. Um, So anyway, here we go. First question, was he a sage? Okay. Was Jesus a sage? And what's a sage? Well, a sage is somebody who's wise. They they do reflection and um, uh, we can learn a lot from them. They, they possess sound judgment as a, as a result of those things. Uh, but and, and they're prudent. Yeah, Jesus was a sage according to them, um, but he was only human. Okay? And here are three aspects that they use to uh, argue for why they think he was only a sage. First of all, uh, his parables, his countercultural sayings, and his teaching about the kingdom of God. So... First of all, his parables, Jesus was a master uh, storyteller. I mean, just just read the parables. Uh, He's phenomenal. Jesus, as a teacher, uses all kinds of different forms to teach his hearers. And um, so in the the parables, and specifically in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 and 32, he has an example, and he uses the example of the mustard seed to compare it to the kingdom of God. And here's what he says. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So what's Jesus doing here? This They say that uh, Jesus in this parable is demonstrating that even the kingdom is made up of nobodies. And these quote-unquote nobodies are uh, going to conquer uh, the social forces that uh, obtain. Okay? Here's another one. Jesus' cultural, uh, countercultural saints. Right? Story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, I'm going to read it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go. And do the same. Well, now, what's the context? The context is Jesus is explaining. He's responding with, Who is my neighbor, Lord? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? 
And then Jesus uses this parable to show that we are to love even those that our particular group despises. Let me explain. There's something here. He's making a distinction here between the unclean versus the clean classes. Um, In this passage, Jesus is upholding the supreme unclean person who is the Samaritan. Okay? The Samaritans, among other things, were half-breeds. Okay? They only took to be the word of God the first five books of the law. Uh, the Jews looked on Samaritans as theological um, idiots. They did not know the word of God. Okay? So what happens is this. This person who is a, a half-breed... Uh, a social outcast and uh, somebody who doesn't know the word, doesn't have his theology straight, is doing something that the others are not. He's showing compassion. He is demonstrating, even though he doesn't have his theology straight, he is demonstrating what it means to love according to God. Now, when he points out the, Jew, uh, the, 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 the difference between the clean class Now, the clean class are are the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, These are the priests. These are the Levites. They know Hebrew history. They're not half-breeds, man. They're purebloods. Okay? Genealogies mean everything to these people. Not only that, they don't want to be bothered with dealing with people that are not easy to deal with. And so Jesus points out their hypocrisy. And how does he do that? By showing them the Samaritan. What's the indictment? The religious establishment that has their quote-unquote theology straight is not living it. And the outcast who quote-unquote does not have his theology straight is living the law. Loving his neighbor. And so people use this as an example. My gosh, look at this countercultural statement. I mean, you don't think this angered the Jews? Oh, it did. Jesus made a habit of angering those who opposed God. And those who opposed God in the New Testament were religious Jews. Now today, the equivalent of a Samaritan and a Jew is the prejudice that was there is equivalent to the, unfortunately, what still remains today between African Americans and white people in the South of the United States. We live in California. It's very different from Virginia and the southern states. Very different. And um, what we don't understand, if you're not from there, the the deep-seated prejudice that exists there, it's still there today. It's very real. Um, but um, back in Jesus' day, oh, this was, this was incredibly, incredibly heightened. They hated Samaritans. But Jesus does something now, okay? Jesus not only uses the Samaritan as an example, Jesus talks about who his true family members are. Talk about a countercultural saying. Do you remember in Matthew 12, uh, 46 and 50, where Jesus casts out a deaf and mute spirit from a man, and his power is attributed to Satan by the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you remember? Oh, he casts out demons by the ruler of Beelzebul. Do you remember that? 
Okay, well. Jesus said this. This is after, you know, everybody's trying to figure out who is he. And, 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 and people are getting more and more riled up. Verse 46 in chapter 12 says this. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, as the sage, uh, not only uses parables, but countercultural sayings, but he also does something else. He does. He teaches about the kingdom of God. Teaching about the kingdom of God. And in this teaching of the kingdom of God. He didn't teach about himself is proclaimed. They say he didn't teach about himself. He didn't teach about his death. He didn't teach about his resurrection. Okay. Um, Any such teachings were a later addition by the church. They're not actual sayings of Jesus. Okay. So, so what are we left with you guys? Here's what we're left with. Uh, a wise man, a sage, who, who could tell masterful stories, uh, can champion the cause of the underdog, and whose wit and wisdom we can apply. But make no mistake about it, he's only a man. He's not divine. Okay? He's only a man. He's not divine. Okay? So how about this? Was he a religious genius? Okay? Was he a sage? Sure, he was a sage, but he was not God. Was he a religious genius? And again, I'm just going to get ahead of myself. Yes, but he was not God. That's what they're going to continually say. One of the things they point to was Jesus' religious experience. And in Jesus' religious experience, he's viewed as a holy man, a a sacred person, um, a a man who had a tremendous amount of virtue, a superior life. But, um, you know, if you you carefully read the New Testament, um, there is no place for indifference. Um, people, people either loved Jesus or they hated him. There's no in between. And uh, his religious fervor was manifested in many different ways. For example, his prayer life. His prayer life. Uh, Jesus, he prayed in the wilderness. He prayed effectively. He prayed early. I mean... um, Prayed in the wilderness, uh, uh, Luke 5.16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He prayed effectively. His disciples asked him, teach us to pray, even as John also taught his disciples. And he prayed early. He got up early in the morning while it was yet dark. Left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Jesus prayed a lot. And he definitely had uh, his act together there. He also fasted. Jesus fasted. Remember his temptation in the wilderness? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, And it was only after he became hungry that the tempter came to tempt him. Uh, He also talked about how it is we are to fast. Uh, We are not to fast to be seen by men because there is our reward. But we're to fast. To be seen by our heavenly father. And our father who sees in secret. Will reward us openly. But not only that. He also talked about when to fast. And essentially. 
He said, when the bridegroom, let me read this. The disciples of John came to him asking, why do, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Okay? So, Jesus also had visions. Jesus also did miracles. Casting out devils, healing the sick, opening up blind people's eyes, healing a fever, etc., etc. He did all of these things. But make no mistake about it. He is only a man. He is not divine. Okay? Now, one thing I want to say is that other religious leaders and figures are hailed as having done what Jesus has done. They, they pray. They fast. They have visions. They supposedly do miracles. But none of these, none of them claim to be the absolute, all-wise creator, God, ultimate, infinite, etc. None of them. None of them. So, was Jesus a social revolutionary? Here's another one. Was he a social revolutionary? Jesus' inclusion of societal outcasts at the table fellowship in a culture that prized privilege was radical. Radical. Uh, in, in Luke 14, verses 7 through 24, there's a lot of things going on there. One section, Jesus is uh, noting that all of the people that are coming in to um, this banquet or whatever, they're all wanting the places of what? Of honor. Okay? And he's, and he, and he's correcting them. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let somebody else... Tell you to come up here. Okay, that's the first thing. Another thing that Jesus is doing is he is uh, talking to the people about what it means to love, and that in the context of the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. And he is telling the people. When you invite somebody over to your house, when you have somebody over to your house, here's what I want you to do. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be a repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This was a radical statement. Jesus is embracing social outcasts. And he was known as a man of sorrows. Jesus was also accused as a, a friend of tax collectors and gluttons. Jesus was around the riffraff. Unlike us, who can be influenced by 
the riffraff. Maybe some of us were. I know I was the riffraff. Unlike us, Jesus affected and impacted them. His person, who he was, touched them in such a way they realized you're different than everybody else we've seen or heard. And Jesus here is saying we're to embrace the unlovely, those who can't benefit us in any way. We're not just to be with those who we're comfortable with. Those who can help us get ahead in life and uh, advance and whatnot. When was the last time we reached out to someone like this? They're all over the place. I mean, you walk down the street, they're... They're all all over the place. Jesus definitely embraced them. Okay? Jesus also criticized his society. It's held that his criticism of society was designed to bring about what's called social egalitarianism. And what this is, it's a belief in human equality, um, especially with respect to uh, social, political, and economic economic rights and privileges. Um, but let me ask you this. Are there no inequalities? Was, was this what Jesus was doing? I think he was doing this, but way more. Um, you know, somebody else says that he, he was breaking down patriarchal oppression. Okay. But you're missing the point of what's being done. Jesus never wasted a word or an action. Everything he said and did had a significance. It had meaning. It wasn't just this. It's way more. Yes, Jesus was a sage. He was a wise sage. He was deeply religious. Uh, his teachings were definitely um, revolutionary. But they were way more than that. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight talks about this, and here's what he says. Such a Jesus would never have been crucified, would never have drawn the fire that he did, and would never have created a movement which still shakes the world. A Jesus who went around saying wise and witty things would not have been threatening enough to have been crucified during Passover when he was surrounded by hundreds who liked him. A Jesus who was a religious genius who helped people in their relationship with God and was kind, compassionate, and gentle would not have been crucified either. A social revolutionary would have been crucified, but it's doubtful that such a revolutionary would have given birth to a church that was hardly a movement of social revolution. And if in the process of surviving, this movement had to shave off the socially revolutionary bits of Jesus... It's amazing that they decided to connect themselves, even root themselves into a person who was a social revolutionary at heart. No, these pictures of Jesus will not do. We've got to remember the Jewish context. We have to. Context is everything. A word means nothing apart from its context. Rule number one in trying to learn anything anybody is trying to say. Come to terms 
Well, part of coming to terms with what the New Testament reveals about Jesus is it is in the context of first century Israel. Judaism, the temple, the Romans. This is all happening. This is all there. So, who is Jesus? Well, let's look at this. What was Jesus' self-understanding? I want to look at both his implicit and explicit claims. Are there any questions? You know what? Let me, let me just pause right there because I'm, I'm halfway done. So why don't we take 15? Okay? And if you got any questions, then you can ask me. How you doing, man? Well, I, have, I do have a question. Great. 